Hey listeners, so this turned out to be another one of those two-parter episodes, so the uh, part you're going to listen to now, which is released as a free episode, will be part one. If you want to listen to part two, please become a Patreon patron at www.patreon.com slash planamag. Hope you enjoy this. There's another episode of Escape from Plan A for you. We hope everyone had a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, uh, Kwanzaa, uh, all that. I'm Chris, here with Teen. What's up, Teen? Hey. Uh, how, how was your Christmas? Quick recap. Um, quite good. It, it, it was like I went down to Maryland as I usually do, and it was quite special this year because all my hometown friends finally got to travel. Like years, past couple years, you know, people were kind of foregoing travel so this was the first year in a while that like a lot of my hometown friends were there as well so we all had a nice gathering and it's good yeah i could tell i mean not your friends in particular but the way new york city just emptied out mm, like everybody yeah. was gone um yeah. and i figured it's because probably the last couple of years people have been holed up uh where they were living not able to visit family because remember last year uh, omicron hit around now right yeah yeah, yeah so, so that, the season got that. completely swamped Mm-hmm. yeah yeah cool. so yeah it's been a i think it's been a good christmas uh this episode uh and so at our last episode we talked about chat gpt which is that ai writing thing wait we hold got on. i gotta th- ask you i gotta ask you though how did that beef turn out oh it turned out turned out very nicely but okay, i got nice. i think my problem though is and, and, and because like when you when you cook like a main dish you don't want to cook the side dishes too early so that they get cold before you serve the main thing right yeah, but also a roast has to rest for about half an hour. So I try to make like a lot of side dishes within that thirty-minute window, including the things that need the oven. It's like perfect if something needs to be in the oven for like twenty minutes. But I think what always tends to happen is I leave the roast out too much. It gets a little colder than I want it to be. So I, I got to figure out that timing, all right? Because you only have one kitchen, and you don't want like the mashed potatoes sitting out there for you know, you know, like forty-five minutes. So you try to get the timing right. But Bro, you need overall, that. You need that buffet. That red lamp. Yeah, that, the, <laughs> the, the, the the steam tray or whatever that is. The the Bunsen the, burner. No, that heat the, lamp. You know. The one that keeps the roast oh, yeah. warm. <laughs> yeah, that one. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but the the roast was good. I thought it was better than last year. Your apartment's um, gonna be like Kramer's apartment when he was on top of that. Oh yeah, with the Kenny, Kenny Rogers. Rogers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but Christmas is great. Um, I shared a couple of uh, these TikToks that I thought were really funny um people maybe people have seen this i saw it on twitter there's one where i guess parents dress up like the grinch and and they like they just come in and ruin all the the christmas tree and like yeah and and they're they're (laughs) it's like simulated burglary right in front of their kids and yeah it's it's entertaining as hell for us but i'm just like thinking of the kids because some of them the kids are like screaming i saw one where the kid starts fighting the grinch (laughs) <laughs> and, and the Grinch like kind of starts fighting back, like whoa, whoa, whoa! Is that the kid's own dad? Oh, uh, like is his dad like trying to like, beat his own son? <laughs> All for what TikTok clout? Like momentary TikTok clout? Like come on now! Yeah, uh, but yeah, but there's there are more wholesome ones, like the one where parents uh, film their kids opening presents. The one I shared is this kid whose grandma buys him. I, I think it's a PS5. I don't know what the hot console is these days. Yeah, PS5. That's the one. And that's what he's he got. just 
Yeah, and I, I thought the sweetest thing he's asked is just like, why? He's like, obviously he wants it, but he he's, he probably knows she's not, you know, some, she's not like Scrooge McDuck. You know, she's not swimming in money. Uh, and he's just like, why? Why? You know, like, I, and I thought that was very sweet. But then there are also the ones where the parents, I saw one where the, uh, I think the parent must have put like a PS2 in a PS5 box. And his daughter just like throws it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh so it can, it can go real bad and and I, I guess he didn't think it was that bad because he chose to upload it on tiktok anyway but this one year this, that reminds me like this one i think it was my birthday my dad told me this is like i was in high school or something he was like there's a present for you i was like oh really he was like i'm like where is it he's like it's waiting for you in the garage i was like yo did i did he buy me a car and i go out <laughs> to the garage and it's the same it's the same old, you know. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, talk down to that car because it was a great car. But my, it's the old Honda Civic station wagon that I, that you know, I had was granted use of during high school. Uh, but there was a he had installed a right side view mirror because mm-hmm. it didn't have one before. So for my birthday, he took it to the dealership and had a mirror installed on the right side, and he put a, a ribbon around it, and he said, "I got you a mirror." <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you. That, that reminds me of when Mr. Bean gives his girlfriend the 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 hook for the the picture he buys her when she wanted yeah, an actual ring. Okay, okay. <laughs> I may have spoiled it, uh, but that's a hilarious thing. Um, yeah, I was I thought you were gonna say uh, your dad's oh go in the garage and there's gonna be a broom and he's gonna be like well the garage is not gonna clean itself chop chop. <laughs> no, it wasn't that Christmas cruel. Gift. He did get me something. I couldn't you know I couldn't claim that he was just baiting me but it was not a new car it was the same it was the same old car but just with a uh-huh. mirror and i was i was happy for the mirror yeah, I was yeah, happy yeah. To have you, it. you need that to live you might get into a bad accident yeah exactly don't have it uh, oh before we proceed i uh, i think we should mention i'm sure we've mentioned it on the pod before but uh recently we had like all this patreon money and then uh very like uh you know it, it's a, it's like when when great minds meet we were thinking of maybe funding uh a very good promising short film project and then our friend dan who must have listened to our podcast you know talking about how we possibly would have wanted to spend the money said hey uh i'm thinking of shooting something about the dragon combat club which is a organization in new york city that helps uh, asian americans uh, learn some self-defense and they wrapped up filming a, a few weeks ago and they got funding from us so i just wanted to let the listeners know that's uh wh- what the money has gone to and you know, going forward, that I th- that's the thing, kind of things that the funds will raise. Because I think for a while, uh, I mean, it's going to dovetail very nicely with this topic. But, you know, we hadn't published any writing uh, for a while. And, and the initial purpose of the fund was to fund writing. So some people may have been wondering, what exactly is my money being used for? Don't worry, we haven't been, uh, you know, laundering it and, and embezzling plan A. But this is the kind of stuff that we'd like to fund. So just want, going forward... Um, if you are not a subscriber and you're thinking, oh, I want to contribute, but I kind of want to know what my money's going for, we're thinking of doing projects like that. So, uh, and Dan Chen, uh, in case people don't know, recently ha- released a documentary, full feature length, did very well. It's got a uh, 95% right now on Rotten Tomatoes. We know Rotten Tomatoes can be kind of bullshit, but you know, 95%. Uh, I saw it. Per- uh, it's really, really good. 
And I'm just seeing all these reviews, uh, these top critics, LA Times, AV Club, New York Times. I know we badmouth a lot of these publications, but hey, when they're on our side, they're good. Uh, this one guy, Charles Solomon, I think it's a more interesting story than it is a film. This bozo from Film Week. KPCC NPR LA. He can go to hell. But besides that, all just glowing reviews. So Also, he Dan told me um, when he was in New York filming that adapted uh, accepted was more of a like a professional project mm-hmm. and his short film Ella was more of like a pure person, like a per- pure personal passion project. Mm-hmm. So you can, I think you could watch Ella on his website. So we'll put, yes. we'll put a link, but I, yeah, Ella is, is uh, a short film that's really easy to watch for free and everything. And mm-hmm. that's his, uh, you know, that's all him. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I, I should describe what accepted is it's a documentary about TM Landry, which is this, very unorthodox school in this very poor neighborhood in Louisiana. They had this track record of uh, like this unbelievable acceptance rate for their mostly uh, black, uh, you know, very poor black kids. But then um, there's like a famous New York Times story that broke, I think in like 2019 or so that showed that there was all sorts of weird, uh, bad things going on, including like the the the, te- the head teacher principal guy being very verbally even sometimes i think physically abusive to his kids so it's a very harrowing documentary i highly recommend it all right so on to the topic um i I talked about how this uh goes with with the whole writer's fun thing because um last episode we did it was on the chat gpt ai writing bot and we got some feedback on that episode and and somebody said you you say this about you know bad writing and all that but you know where is plan a's writing uh these days that is i mean we, we wrote a ton uh years ago and i thought you know that is something that i've personally been thinking about uh you know how to you know get back into writing because i think the last thing i wrote was summer of 2020 because it was covid related i think it was like the middle maybe the start of summer 2020 teen do you remember what the last thing you wrote for plan a was no it was a, I, I, maybe something about crazy rich Asians or something like that and um <laughs> Yeah. And look, that's a long time ago. It was, it is a long time ago. And like, like those, those things are not easy to write. Like they take a Mm -hmm. lot of time and effort. And so our, our model had been not just for us to keep writing stuff because, you know, not only is it difficult, but there's really no return on that investment for us other than, you know, the, 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 I guess this private thrill of watching the stats say, okay, people are actually reading this, but we put out, uh, you know, a, an open offer really for people to come pitch articles and, and write for us. And I think the reason we ended up saying, you know what, I think we're more or less going to shut that down for now and just kind of do this film project is because, like, honestly, people weren't really stepping, you know, we weren't really seeing a line form for people who wanted to write uh, pieces that, you know, maybe weren't going to get published anywhere else. There is not from my experience, a surplus of writers in writing, there's a deficit of it. And us going out and saying, we're going to pay market rates for articles did not result in a lot of people uh, pitching us. So, uh, so we went elsewhere uh, in terms of trying to, you know, empower creatives. Anyway, it's my little Mm -hmm. bit, but yeah. Yeah. And that, that's certainly, um, you know, things that we want other people to do. As for me, like why I stopped writing for a bit. Well, one thing was I focus actually more on fiction uh, for the last few years. I, I'll talk more about that later. But another part of me was also I, I felt like I had written everything I wanted to write about 
that we were all really thinking about when we started planning. Namely, it, it's yeah. the kind of, uh, I would say, like first level, maybe like second level in terms of, you know, uh, thought of analysis. It usually has to do with like media rep or, you know, relationship issues, uh, gender war stuff on, on kind of, a, as I said, first, maybe second level type of analysis. And I, I think by the end of kind of like 2018, maybe a little bit into 2019, it just felt like I, I just don't have anything more to say about that matter. And and the last few years has been me thinking about, it's like, it's like a, a lot of stuff I wrote for Planet was stuff I'd been thinking about for a lot of my life, especially after like, you know, adolescence. And now if once that has all been expressed, you're now working with stuff that you're kind of learning on the go that you haven't had time to uh, ruminate over for for years before ever even trying to write something. Uh, so, so what I want to do now is with the with the coming year, I want to now kind of get back into writing. And this year, I did I did write something. I, I got something published on Current Affairs, which I also want to talk about a bit more later. Which I think is is the next step for people of our whatever you want to call it. Like I don't, I don't want to just say Plan A because that implies just us in the team or just like people who, who are our patrons or who read or write for us or whatever, just anybody of, of our kind of like Asian American mindset. I think the next step for us is to just, is to get out of our own uh, groups and, and try to uh, get into outsider things. And Tina, I want to talk about your recent um, like interest in fiction writing because I, I went to Korea, you know, a little over a month. I first went there a little over a month ago. We met up for drinks before I left and we had this, a long conversation in which, yeah, you told me, I don't know if that was the first time you told me, um, it might have been, that you had all these stories that you wanted to write about. And I've, in the time I've known you, I've known you to write nonfiction. I don't think I've ever heard you talk about writing, wanting to write fiction. So if you want to talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, I actually don't know if fiction is the right, I mean, it is fiction that I'm writing, but like, I don't know if it's, defo- I mean, I think it's just storytelling in a way because like I'm writing about a story that actually happened to me. Um, That's a lot of fiction though. (laughs) Yeah, that's yeah, exactly. But it's weird. I guess it's weird when people say fiction, I guess just for me, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't use that term often except to describe either fiction as a like fiction writing or the, the, this in the sense of fictional, like it didn't happen. Um, but yeah, just writing stories basically versus writing think pieces. I guess, I guess, I guess I'm, 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 I'm yeah, I, I, fiction is the right word, but I'm just saying it's more, it wasn't so much me saying like, I want to, you know, I want to make stuff up <laughs> rather than write, you know, nonfiction think pieces and stuff. But it was more like, you know, there are a lot of stories that I know about either that I was involved in or I've heard about that I'd like to sort of yeah fictionalize and write as a short story or something like that and i don't have any experience doing that so i brought it up with you because i know you've done it and you're giving me some helpful tips and then i found out and i really started in earnest a few weeks ago and then i spent the christmas break really like just banging on the keys of this typewriter and the pages are just like drop it out i'm having tons of fun doing it it's uh it's amazing whether whether the output is good or not the process of doing it is like really fun. No, the process is uh, is more important at this point. And and Tim, did you say that you were writing it on a typewriter? Oh uh, yeah, that's right. Okay, listeners, uh, he uh, Tim would text me, uh, you know, these like 
pages that he was writing and i texted back to him you're on your way to become jack nicholson in the shining yeah. and you'll, you'll be drinking at the ghost bar for the rest of your life very soon um yeah. but yeah actually you brought up see i don't think the dichotomy is fiction versus non-fiction i think it's more about criticism versus creation which is one another reason i i was like i'm gonna take a break from i think it's fair constantly uh f- providing feedback and reactions to crap, you know? There's only so many times I can go after like a Jenny Han or, or Celesting or Mindy Kaling before it becomes very, like I've done enough of that. And in fact, there was like a recent uh, piece that was very popular was some on somebody's uh, Substack. Her name's like Shailene Corinne or something. I, I can provide a, a link in the, in the show notes. But it was very, you know, a lot of people read it. I, I saw it play, being shared on places on Reddit. Uh, and it was pretty much saying like the kind of stuff we were saying uh, like four or five years ago. And I was happy people were, were still talking about it. But I was just like, I if I was still writing about that stuff in 2022, it, it'd be very embarrassing just because it's, it's just like you're just, you're just doing the same thing over and over again. And, and you should be able to evolve. So I, th- I think that next point of evolution is let's stop giving so much of our time and energy to these people who, quite frankly, don't deserve it and then put something of our own out there and have other people react to it. You know, it'd be nice, even if somebody was uh, criticizing our stuff, it'd be nice to, to get that instead of us always being like gadflies or something like that. So I think that's, that's the distinction, like fiction, you know, whether it's made up or not, um, you're, you're doing something original. I think that's, that's the key distinction. Yeah. You know, I I feel like I'm in a very similar place to you um, in thinking about that because like just, just having, stepped out of Twitter for a bit. I, I, I reactivated oh, yeah, that's a big my, thing. it is, I reactivated my account just because I don't think like, I just didn't want to have like this sort of art, not artificial, but like this hard limit to keep like, it, it felt like locking the liquor cabinet, you know, like I was like, <laughs> why? Just made you want it more. <laughs> yeah. And it just felt like, you know, the lock sort of reinforces the idea that I'm an alcoholic, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was like, yep, yeah, no, we're going to remove the lock, reactivate the account and see what happens. And I'm just like, not, I'm just not, you know, the more I go, the more, every time I go on Twitter, the, the more I realize, like, this constant cycle of um, reaction to reaction to reaction, it's like Hall of Mirrors where the illusion makes you feel like you're in this infinite space and that a lot, there's a lot of space, there's a lot of action, there's, you know, you see a ton. It's kaleidoscopic almost. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that you're, you're in the tiny little room. Yeah, it's just you and in a musty basement. Yeah, and but it's just this infinite reflection going on, because of of reaction upon reaction, and if you when you step out of that, it really feels like what they're talking about and what people are warring, going to war over, with each other, just seems really small, and just taking a step out of that and just the act of being trying something creative, even if nobody reads it, other than just the process of you doing it. It feels much bigger, like, and it makes that re- reaction, the reaction, you know, echo chamber of re- of Twitter and Reddit, et cetera, just seems very, really, really small. And um, oh yeah, for yeah. sure, yeah. Like recently, um, so- somebody sent me this essay that had apparently been the hot topic of the day, maybe like like a week or two ago. Uh, it was the it was released on the Guardian, and it was about the it was by this writer named Isabel Kaplan. She's talking about how 
uh, her and her boyfriend were both writers, but then as she was getting more successful, he had dumped her. We can talk about this later, uh, this essay later, but there was a reaction essay called Enough with the Sad Put Upon Woman essay on Slate. I, I just read it again before uh, this podcast just to refresh myself. And, and I was like, this is a really well-written piece. A woman named Rachel Connolly wrote it. Uh, very surprising. Slate often does not produce good material, but I was not to- I had no idea about the so-called controversy. I had no idea about the original piece. I had no idea that this Slate reaction piece came out. It was only after uh, our friend Tish uh, shared it with us. I'm like, oh, damn, I totally missed this because I was, I was busy doing other stuff. And he's like, yeah, maybe a lot of, it got a lot of comments, but in the end, that's like, what, a, a few thousand people? That's it. And it's not even a, a drop of a drop of a drop, you know? And it's, once you do step outside of it, you do realize how how weird it must be for anyone outside of it that that this place exists. It is, yeah. And when you step out of it, you know, and like people are just really caught up in. I mean, even that essay, um, the response, the response essay, saying like, you know, that she felt like this. Um, I, one part I picked up on that I really thought was good was this this like uh, the the idea that such vulnerability would fe- feminine vulnerability. Uh, would be presented as the secret true essence. Oh, sorry, I'm I'm misquoting it, but it's that part about the pretzel, <laughs> like, mm, oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> this like anger that <clears throat> that the you know that her as a woman was reduced to some like really terrible uh, metaphor to a pretzel <clears throat> made me think about what Kathy Park Hong had written about Asian, the essence of being Asian. Uh, the metaphor being a urinal cake of shame. And uh, yeah, I felt the same way. Like, okay, you know, you're not, you don't speak for me or whatever. But on the other hand, like writing a reaction essay to that is different than just writing something that doesn't, uh, you know, writing something new, whatever it is that she wants to write on her, of her own creative accord that doesn't hew to that conception of the pretzel or whatever, or for me, you know, instead of let's say us, like instead of reacting to um, minor feelings by saying, Hey, you know, that's not a great metaphor to call us, you know, urinal cakes of shame is a different thing than just going ahead and writing what it is you want to write. That is not steeped in that idea that, you know, my, 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 being Asian is some is is really tantamount to just dealing with shame or whatever. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. Because even if the reaction is legitimate, it's still not the same as doing something that lives up to the criticism or the reaction that you want to make. Yeah, exactly. It's like remember back. I, I don't think they have these anymore. Remember in the back back in like nineties uh, gaming era, you had the expansion packs. Remember those? Uh, okay. Yeah. These oh, are you like, mean oh, you mean like for like a PC game, and you would yeah, you would da- have the main yeah, game. Yeah. You get you like new like missions a, and stuff, right? Exactly, and that's what the the reaction and and criticism pieces are like. They are like the expansion packs. They can be superior to the original. They can be exquisite works of art themselves, and of intellect and 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 you know logic and all that. But in the end, they cannot exist without the original, and because of that, they will never be as uh like they will never stand the test of time as as much as something as its equivalent if it were totally original because maybe the original gets totally lost in time maybe people just just discard it or whatever and 
because of that, your own piece diminishes in value because people are like, oh yeah, that was cringe. We all know that now. And the thing you wrote pointed out that cringe and hurrah for you, but but without without your own kind of power source of relevance, you you kind of get dragged down with it as well. So, I mean, when I look back at our the writing we did, I think it was very necessary at the time. I mean, I, I just think of you remember how like supercharged those days were. We were like on on edge all the time, checking like social media, who's saying this about that. Uh, it was a different time, yeah. and I think we were necessary yeah. because there was no one else out there. We had to do it. Well, I don't. I, def- I don't regret it. Yeah, I, I, I think, don't regret. Yeah, it I don't either. regret it at all. I just think that it wears itself out after a while, and you, you, oh, it sure, kind of yeah. has a natural. It has a natural sort of. I don't want to say endpoint, but like a a point. Like it has a natural. Uh, like point at which it kind of has to become something more and all the things that you we felt or i felt i was trying to say or to stand up for uh in you know you can't just keep making the point you've got to embody it somehow mm-hmm. you know yeah. what i mean so yeah like yeah, we not- could we could bitch about how you know asian american literature sucks or Asian American creative like storytelling sucks and we could make great points, but we still haven't told a story. Yeah, exactly. And it's not through lack of effort. I mean, just uh, listeners, I mean, just to give a little timeline of what I've been doing. So 2020, uh, there have been no- this novel I've been working on for quite a while and, you know, on and off uh, over uh, several years. So 2020, um, I just happened to come upon a lot of free time because I was like unemployed and partially employed. So I did this like like pretty much rewrote almost like wrote a whole new book because I just started from the beginning. I was like, okay, forget everything. Uh, I mean, I had the same story, but I rewrote it, a uh, different type of angle and all that. And then 2021, I, I shopped it around to agents. And for the first time, I like shopped it around before, even starting back in 2015. But it was like, you know, uh, this was like the first time I was getting, I started getting actual requests for the full manuscript. So, you know, they start coming in about spring of 2021 and, uh, you know, all th- from then to like summer, you know, is like a process of getting more manuscript requests, sending in pages, waiting for feedback, getting rejections. And then uh, by the end of the summer, it was uh, clear that um, it, it wasn't going to get picked up. And I was like, at, by that time, I had come to terms with it. And in fact, throughout 2021, I had been going through this own my own like writerly uh, evolution where I was like, you know, this is a book that I actually started when I was 22. And as much as I tried to update it as I change and matured, it still has the the essence of a 22-year-old. And I, I was like, okay, I think it's time to put it away. I've been working on it for, for so many times. I, I've revised it countless times. I was like, okay, I can... I can comfortably put it away and say, you know what, this is a necessary process to get it out of my system. And I started a new thing. And then I, I finished that book by the end of 2021. That was the first draft, uh, which is why... How long did it take you to get a finished draft of a novel out? The, the second um, it takes me about six months of like consistent writing. Wow. That's, okay. I, I think so. I think around six months. Um, I try to aim for about five to 500 to 1,000 words a day. I don't write every day, but every time I so try like to write. So like one or two pages, like, uh, like yes. single space pages. Uh, yeah, I think something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and That's a good hey, by, by the time I started my second book, I, I knew that I could 
finish a book. So it wasn't really a big deal that I got a first draft out. I already knew, okay, first draft, it's going to take a while for me to revise this thing, but I at least have a first draft. So then I, I, you know, would say, okay, let's go back to full-time work. And then in 2022, that's when I, I got my essay accepted at current uh, affairs. And that was, that was a big, um, which we'll put a link to again. I'm sure people, oh, yeah, have, yeah. a lot of people have seen it, but we'll link it again. Right. And that was a big moment for me because, you know, as I've written a lot of plays, uh, pieces of a plan A, some of which have become very popular, but still it's different when somebody else publishes you versus you publishing yourself, no matter how, how like popular you are, because there is uh, a very important kind of acceptance of your ideas beyond just yourself by somebody or some entity that's established and, you know, current affairs, you know, big publication, especially in like New York City. And I thought that was a big sign that, you know, we'd been like this scrappy little, you know, startup media based in medium. Uh, and then we moved on to another platform, but still a bunch of people who'd never worked in media before, never really been published anywhere, uh, no podcast experience, whatever. I thought, okay, I think these are baby steps. I think this is us making progress into making our ideas uh, a bit more mainstream because I've had I've had like a, a close call before. Like back in 2018, I had a piece that was going to be published in uh, electric literature. I don't know if I've talked about it on spot this. ever before. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think we did. Uh, possibly. Back, I think we talked about it back then. No, no, no. I definitely did not talk about it back then because back then I was like, I didn't I didn't want people to know that because I mean, you this mean is on another the pod ch- we didn't talk about it. I, I, I highly doubt it because okay. I mean this is the kind of stuff that I would have been very uncomfortable sharing. But see, that's the change in mindset now. Now I'm like I'm pr- I probably say it, but uh, just to give you uh, listeners a quick overview, um, Electric Lit, which is this extremely kind of lip lip brained uh, literature mag, um, they accepted my piece in 2018. Uh, sometime I, I forgot when it was. I think it was like I submitted it in the spring, but they didn't accept it until maybe the summer and. You know, everything was going well. But remember 2018, that was the height of the like Asian American Twitter wars. This was when I think Celeste Ng was first attacked for her. Uh, John Cho reminds me of my cousin's comment. This was when uh, that To All the Boys I've Loved Before movie came out. There's a lot of fear over that. Which I want to point out um, that there was this post in this subreddit called Do Moi, which is it was just basically kind of like a celebrity gossip uh, uh Subreddit is dominated by women. They're, they're pretty much mindset is anytime there's like a sexual assault allegation, it's a hundred percent true, uh, no matter what the evidence says. Anyway, um, they had posted that article I mentioned that that you know criticized Mindy Kaling for the fact that for all every one of her shows features like a, a dorky, uh, self-hating Indian girl who falls for a dorky white guy who's obviously BJ Novak. Anyway, the most upvoted comment in that thread uh, called out uh, to all the boys I've loved before. So four years later, even a subreddit like Dumois realizes the truth. We were saying it first, so uh, I just want to say that. Anyway, so that was the the environment of 2018. So they published my piece, I think it was in September. And uh, the morning it goes up, everything's going well. The the editor and I, we had this great back and forth as she's like, looking through my piece, which is all about kind of like how uh, Asian American, the Asian American straight male perspective has been long excluded from culture, but especially literature. And even on that topic, I mean, the stuff I wrote for it was very exact same I would have written for Planet. She was like, oh my God, you're so right. You're, you're on point, whatever. 
Uh, but right after it was published, my guess is, uh, you know, one of our enemies on Twitter snitched on us as that because back then I was still going as Oxford condo on plan A, but I had submitted a piece under my real name. Somebody must have snitched said, oh, did you know this is Oxford condo from that MR Asian publication plan A? And then um, they, they put this uh, <laughs> like header note on my piece saying, no, oh. not him, <laughs> not Oxford. They were like, um, like, while we, uh, you know, stand by our decision to publish this piece please note that this author has said racist and misogynistic things about you know wmaf couples or, or something like that we do not condone racism or misogyny in any form uh so there was like a big long fight well not long but it lasted about a weekend uh me taking yeah, the piece you enlisted down. Uh, you enlisted us and we were yeah we, i was we, asking we were, you and, and yeah. jess and the rest of the plan a for help and um and it, the problem was like it was even that, though that was a I, good test of us as a group because oh yeah, we no, 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 we no. were like no fuck this this is fucked up and we all did what we could to to get them to take that shit down the, right uh, but the problem saying. was they took that well first they deleted it but only the the article they kept the head note up so now if you like googled my name it linked to the article no article itself but only that like warning sign so now it, people could have said could have imagined I said anything in, in that thing. So I was like, no, take the whole thing down. They're like, sorry, this is like the internet cache. We can't do anything about it. So much so that, Tina, I think you recommended I talk to a like a some kind of a defamation uh, kind of attorney. Yeah. So I hit one up and he's like, oh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's $1,200 for a cease and desist letter. But, you know, these have no legal binding power. I was like, fuck that. I'm not paying that kind of money for no, that. Just write one that. yourself. And that was actually a weekend I was going to Philadelphia to uh, see churches and concerts. And I remember, like I was telling you guys, I, I don't think I can go. I mean, it, this is just too too stressful. And and, and teen, you were saying no, go, um, just enjoy yourself, forget about this. Uh, on Monday, everything will will work out. And I'm very glad I went. Had a great weekend. One of the best concerts I've been to. Oh, and eventually, it all worked out. But yeah, that that moment was my my brush with reality that this like blue check world. Uh, there's no there's no reconciliation. You know, it, it, they are them and we are us and it, we don't right. necessarily right. have to destroy them, but I, there's no cooperation. It is not possible. Well, I mean, whatever you do has to take place on the outside of them. I mean, you're not, right, it's exactly. not going to be that let's reform, let's, let's beat the system from the inside kind of thing. Oh, no, I mean, yeah. You're just going to have to do it. You know, you, you, I mean, ultimately to me, it's, it's like, you just, the, the key, the key to it still, I think is to really like. I mean, I, I think we I think we just need to get back to like enjoying the process of creating whatever it is you want to do, whether it's Dan and his film project or you and your novel or me and my little short story, whatever it is, whatever scale we're working at, whoever is, you know, whatever it is you're doing that I, I think a lot of like the metapolitics and and all that, it, it just spoils the the broth, you know, it just spoils the dish. And you got to simplify it down. And I think people should just really enjoy what they're doing. It's a really fun. It should be fun, you know, like. Um, yeah. I often and so say I, I think they just they're just they just they're killjoys. They just destroy the ability to enjoy doing it because they they um, the blue checks, I mean, because you're just constantly questioning whether what you're writing is going to please some imaginary group of people that you don't really like anyway. You know? <laughs> right, right. And uh, with the current affairs thing, 
I, I, I have to admit, uh, up until it actually went up and even, even after it went up, I was like bracing myself. Like, could this happen again? Um, I, it was pretty, I, th- I think it was pretty clear it wasn't because it, to my editor, I, like when I submitted the piece, they also asked for, hey, if you've ever written anything else, let us know. So I sent them links to some of the, the Plan A stuff. So she knew, she must have known like what the stuff I wrote before. And, and I'm guessing she probably researched me in case, because it turned out, you know, in, in case they accidentally publish a neo-Nazi or something, that's not good. That's not a good look on their part. So they probably thoroughly researched their contributors. Uh, but still, I just had this little paranoia because of what happened back in 2018. And then, but once it went up, it felt like we had won the the war. Uh, I mean, there, there's a series of wars going on. It's not like we won the to- whole thing, but you know, we we stayed around. We kept trying, and you know, they tried they tried to scare us off, but we're still here. So now let's keep moving. So, all right, I, th- I think the the important thing now to discuss is okay. If you want to write something, what exactly do you want to write about? Like, not everyone will have their different topics and different obsessions and etc. But like, what grander ideology are you trying to uh advocate uh and also try to fight against so there is this essay that i really like i i mean i, I find myself reading it like at least once every couple of months it's it's called transgression and elegy by laura kipnis who is a feminist scholar she has this really good book called unwanted advances which i've read as well and it's all about her struggles like she's like a very um you know lefty feminist type but she's like look I, i'm a academic i think she works at columbia she's talking about how a lot of these uh like title nine sexual misconduct allegations get really abused especially in the context of uh, intra-academic rivalries you got like professors who simply don't like other professors or you know want their friend to get this person's job and, and all that uh and so you know it, it's a very honest look at her struggles with this and how she's faced ostracization and criticism for not towing the the party line so uh teen you read this right yeah i read it um mm. so I so the whole mm. Mm? yeah go ahead no go ahead good oh, i was just gonna give a quick overview so this is laura kipnis talking about how when she was younger um i don't know if she was an art student or not but she was definitely into art this is like in the, I think, 70s. And back then, you know, transgression was the uh, the hot thing to do. I mean, she names this guy whom she idolized, Vittorio Acconci, who is, well, if he hasn't been like canceled now, he probably, there's probably some movement too. But, you know, he, he would do these art uh, projects that were very, like the, the one where he's essentially like stalking people until until he can't stalk them any any longer, you know, things like that, things that would probably not be allowed these days. But she she's her whole Well, the other point, one that he where, he where he apparently he he was in some booth in a museum and he was just like jerking it to the people that were walking around the booth or something Oh, and oh yeah. It oh, broadcast yeah, the sound of him what all the shit he was saying. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> he was that, being a that little would perv also, inside a booth. <laughs> that would definitely not be allowed today. Yeah. But uh her her whole point is there's been this shift where you know for a while transgression was the thing that was valued most in art it was you know it was basically the the, the like the the power core of all creative energy and she talks about how that has been replaced by trauma and i mean we, we referenced it in that slate piece and that guardian piece which is all about you know 
trauma and especially like a, like a very feminine type of trauma. And she also talks about the gendered aspect of it. Uh, transgression is at least the way it was, it manifests itself in these worlds, very masculine. It was a, you know, you know, like, like a guy jerking off publicly, you, you, you generally speaking, like that's a much more guy thing to do. Whereas trauma is obviously much more uh, female. Uh, you got, you got the, you know, people talking about their, you know, like their depression or just this whole kind of like damsel in distress type of uh, performance. And yeah, I, I just think it's, it, it explains so much of what we see in the culture wars right now. And what I think is deeply needed in Asian American culture, I, th- I think Asian American culture is so, f- of all the ethnic subcultures, I think is by far the most steeped in this type of like feminine trauma which is why you see like almost no asian american male writers especially in literature and if you do they're always just pathetic i mean, I, th- I think I, I mentioned reading that book um uh which side are you on i mean that that's terrible book and and even even like the highly acclaimed ones like the sympathizer i don't know it's just like it's still very you know it's very like safe in in terms of their transgressive sensibilities so yeah i'll read some quotes from it uh but tina i want to get your thoughts i gotta say i wasn't a big fan of it i i know what she's saying and Mm -hmm. i i think there's something to the idea that um sort of liberal cult liberal culture has become maybe a little bit overly politically correct but i think she overstates this idea of transgression being the mode the mode uh uh you know in in, in decades prior and that trauma didn't play a part in that. I, I mean, her examples are very esoteric and I think she, you know, cherry picks the things that she likes, but I, you know, I, I think that there's a bigger, uh, two things. I think one reaction was like, I I think a lot of the types of art that she's talking about, especially in mid century and things like she mentions Pollock and, you know, we're talking abstract expressionism and, uh, conveniently leaves out um you know what we know today which is that all this stuff was um sponsored by the cia in fact you can go mm-hmm. to state.gov and they have a link to the program and it's <laughs> not there you know that the, this is a this is not a conspiracy theory this is a this mm-hmm. you know the, it's a open fact well maybe i'll put a good we'll, we'll link a good article about it um I think um, I'm reading. In fact, I'm reading this from from a uh, article by this person, Francis Stoner Saunders, in the Independent, and um, it talks about uh, regarding. Okay, so this is Donald Jameson, who was, uh, I guess, a, a case officer at the CIA. Um, regarding abstract expressionism, I think that what we did was really to recognize the difference uh, between the kind of art that made you know the socialist realism in the in the soviet union look even more stylized and more rigid and confined than it actually was and that relationship was exploited in some of our exhibitions in our way in a way our understanding was helped because moscow in those days was very vicious in its denunciation of any kind of nonconformity to its own very rigid patterns. And so one could quite adequately and accurately reason that anything they criticized that much and that heavy-handedly was worth support one way or another. So I think that there is like a historical reassessment of that mid-set, like that aesthetic, those sort of 
um, what she calls transgressive aesthetic movements that is are not quite as transgressive as she makes it out to be. In fact, they're CIA sponsored. Many, you know, at least some of the examples she talks about. So yeah, I think she's overestimating transgression in the past, and she's, um, you know, I think that sort of helps her make her the case that we're in a very special and sort of almost inverse period. Uh, moment in time, but I just don't think that's necessarily true. Um, but the other part that I think is a kind of an issue that I've picked up on is it this this essay still goes along with this larger feminine versus masculine culture war that we going on, that we're seeing. It's a gendered it's a gendered um, dichotomy where we talk about this being mas- traditionally masculine or that being traditionally feminine. And uh, I just don't, I don't know. I, it's, a, it's an odd thing for me to see, especially as I get older, because uh, as I get older, like the, these gender, this gender dichotomy becomes less and less relevant because as you get, I think as, as men and women age, we actually start to converge a lot more than we were when we were in our, you know, 20s and even early 30s or whatever but you know adult men and women and then when we get to more advanced stages it becomes even more obvious that we become like overlapping so i think the real dichotomy is between when we talk about american masculinity and manhood being under threat i don't think the problem or the obstacle or the foe of that is femininity but immaturity and that the opposite we assume that the opposite of man is woman but i don't see why we don't view it as boy or child so i think what's missing is really like this return to maturity and she's openly equating what appears to be very juvenile uh acts like seedbed is very this this um vito conchi if that's how you say his name um the art that she's talking about public masturbation um you know uh, stalking people in public, you know, stalking strangers in public. Is it transgressive and creepy? Sure, but that's almost giving it too much credit. I think it's just very juvenile. And uh, I'm not sure it deserves the, you know, it deserves the praise that she's heaping on it. I don't know. That, that was my reaction to it, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I I definitely see your point. I th- I think they are linked though because I do think that the 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 immaturity thing is linked to the like I I think I think you're right in that it's not so strictly male versus female because obviously not all men are like this and not all women are like this. But I do think a certain class of women are predominantly like this. I do think a certain type of men are like this because it's it's i mean because i i do think there is a type of like sensibility especially in in like cultural expression that are simply more i would say it just makes women look good when they do it and conversely there's a certain type of cultural sensibility that makes men look good uh when they do it for instance um i think trauma as we know it here, I mean, this is the kind of trauma. Uh, I mean, we see a lot of it in, in like you know, when we look at Asian American examples. It's the you know when when there's like an attack on Asian Americans. It's the one where everyone's crying 
huddling together uh, and, you know, talking about, you know, praying for our enemies or, okay, or but shit that, like but, that. But I think that's cherry pick because if you look at because Kathy Park Hong and Minor Feelings talks about trauma and trauma is the basis of what she's writing. But where did she pick it up? And she said right in the opening that she picked it up watching Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor I mean, she was says all about that. But she says no, that. But. No, she says that. But her point is correct that Richard Pryor's work was all about trauma. And I don't right, think but, he's ever been coded as as feminine. Right, but it's it's the particular expression of that trauma. Like imagine like like a like an Asian American male version of Richard Pryor. She'd cancel him. She'd attack him for being a misogynist, an MR Asian type of thing. I mean, I don't really know Richard. I know, Pryor but that I just well, don't. But I know, but then there's a. But you're bringing in a racial aspect into it. Sure, okay, but I'm just saying that the I, in my opinion, the the broad, the the say if we zoom out and just look at this in generalities, uh, allow ourselves to look at this in generalities. I still don't think it holds up that trauma is is inherently feminine. You know, I think that no, I agree because trauma can be tra- trauma can be anything. Like Saving Private Ryan is all about trauma, right? Yeah, I think if there you, was yeah, there was a it. lot of war trauma stuff that was done around Vietnam War, for example, like um, Platoon or uh, you know Full Metal Jacket, and, and this obsession that we had with you know. Um, and, and even modern stuff like American Sniper or whatever, it's like hyper-masculine stuff was all had to do with PTSD and, and trauma of war, you know? Um, so I, I, I'm not sure that there, you could, you could, I'm not sure we can divide, you know, to say like, okay, there's this sort of like feminine trauma genre, and then there's this masculine transgression trauma, uh, uh, you know what I mean? I, I still don't think. Let's, let's call it. Mm. Let's call it like trauma with a capital T or something, because uh, uh-huh. I, I think this is something we we can all sense when we when we see it. The the kind of uh, it, it's a it's almost it almost feels like you you're watching something uh, like like of the Virgin Mary that kind of that kind of like trauma. It, it, it's very. I mean, it's insincere. Graceful. I know what you it's, mean. It's got, I mean, it's insincere yeah. and it's used in a. I mean, it's used. I think it's co-opted trauma and it's used sort of uh, to, to, to hold oneself to be beyond like criticism. And, and so it can be like a cloak and, and just sort of like say like, okay, I'm, I'm entitled to be listened to and, and you can't really criticize what I'm saying because I'm coming from a place of trauma, right? Sure. But I don't know. I still don't know if the gender characterization of it is the correct one. I'm not even saying whether that's like the politically correct. I don't really care. But I'm just saying I still think that we're not getting to the heart of the issue by saying that um, there is a certain class of feminine feminist determined genre writing that has got us into this situation i don't know i'm not totally sold i think it's more like i still think it has something to do with our inability to like reach for more universal things beyond boys versus girls and part of that i think is to be honest i think it's 
either a lack of maturity or it's this hyper focus on the problems of youth. You know, like it's just we're really obsessed with like single people who can't who can't make it work with you know, with the dating culture or they can't make it work with the career. They can, you know, like we're just really focused on the obstacles of getting from like an immature state to a mature state, but we're not really focused on actually fix like bridging that gap. We're just sort of like navel gazing and then sort of like offloading all the problems that we have reaching maturity as a people and just like projecting all this onto blaming that on some, some institution or some, some cultural phenomenon out there or some archetype. And uh, it just doesn't, it just re re entrenches, I think what is a false dichotomy. Uh, Sorry, I I I may have gone a little long there, but. Oh, no, no, no worries. No, but I, I think what, Kidmus would say, or at least what I would say, uh, reading her work, is that a lot of that immaturity is precisely because. So this like capital T T trauma we're talking about also is. It's it's questionable whether it is trauma. It's it's one thing to, for example, have been in a war. It's one thing to have uh, been raped. Is one thing, but a lot of this trauma that she talks about here, and at least what I talk about, is the kind of, as you said, the the quiet domestic inconveniences and uh, like often interpersonal uh, unhappiness or rivalries that that uh, these are kind of like upper class people feel which can which I'm not saying is totally illegitimate but the but the fact that they dominate so much and they get to elevate it to trauma and even crowd out other types of trauma which are experienced by other groups of people including other women is what I think is is um is, is the problem here because like yeah transgression um because in my view I mean she talks about the the Akanchis and the and the, uh, and the other people she brings up but I don't really think she wants those people exactly to come back or at least I certainly don't but I mean we've seen it in the kind of stuff we do where even the slightest thing that makes you know what we call the blue check class of Asian Americans slightly uncomfortable about their lives is considered disgusting, uh, out of out of uh, outside the bounds of what should be allowed, and all that. And you know, I I certainly don't think of myself as as like a transgressive person. I'm I'm, I'm if you just look at my life, the the type of job I have, the type of schools I have, I certainly am not. So for even the stuff that we said to be considered so bad that. I don't think we were uh, mentioned that disinformation report that came out earlier this year, but uh, we ba- we might as well have been, I think, right? They were clearly alluding to kind of the people we're friends with. So, I mean, just how how fucked up is this Overton window that we're the we're the of Vito Akanchis of Asian America, and I think that's what we have to realize that hey, you know what? The stuff we say is not the equivalent of some stalker guy who's going to jerk off on strangers. We actually, Sophie say is actually relatively normal, at least outside of this weird, like Twitter spheres and, and, you know, social justice spheres, blue check spheres and all that. And if we just put our stuff out there, especially original stuff, that's not constantly reacting to things. I think it would have a major impact. And, and in that 
when we were having that drink and we were talking about, we're talking about one thing is just how like sexless Asian American culture is. Uh, I mean, like years ago, I remember we devoted several articles to always be my maybe and how, what a great depiction of, of yellow or Asian American love it is. But you know, even at the time, like I I was, did we, did we write positive things about that? I I think so. Um, I mean like, you know, Diana Mm -hmm. and and Jai Young, I think they, they definitely wrote a piece about how, you know, they were like a, you know, Asian American couple, especially in comedy and, and like entertainment. So, oh, okay. So they wrote a piece about it, but even then, I was just like, "This is so." We made sterile. fun of it in a podcast. Uh, I, we might have, we might have, uh, yeah. as well. But we definitely wrote positive things about it as well. And even at the time, it's like this is completely sexist. And the only time there's any sort of vitality is when she's with Keanu Reeves, who's, who is a white guy. I mean, let's be honest; he's a white guy. I thought the only- funniest. I thought the funniest thing about that movie was actually how. Um, do you remember she had like that one friend who was like a complete star fucker when it came to Keanu Reeves, and they were making was it fun the of best her friend. Was it the yeah, best friend? Yeah, the best friend. Okay, okay, who would like totally overreact to to Keanu Reeves, and you know, mm-hmm. like the the character was absurd and funny uh, because she was way too excited about him. Uh-huh. But that was the like blue check reaction to always be my maybe was a bunch of hers. It was a bunch <laughs> of people, men and women, like completely overreacting to Keanu Reeves and, you know, calling, you know, I mean, just like the movie is literally making fun of you, mm-hmm. but you're playing right into that. And right. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think it's because Asian American culture is so immature that any talk of actual sex which is often kind of gross and degrading and hypocritical and all that uh, between two especially two yellow people is like unfathomable to us that's why you, you have to you know look at asian stuff uh to get anything close to that kind of you know hot-blooded desire and passion and and the best we can do in asian america at least it's between two asian people is um like uh always be my maybe and then the only way other way it's often allowed to be expressed is when it's a white dude and and an asian woman and that's always this very you know trauma you know so-called trauma focused uh you know sad forlorn okay but but kind of stuff okay but what what it comes down to though i think is and i think basically that 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 night that uh before you went to uh korea and we were talking at bargota I mean, I, I felt like the essence of what we we're trying to say, and I think what we're trying to do, is I've come to sort of a realization now that, like, look, the reason we're not seeing this, the you know, what we want to see, or at least I think, is because like the people who could be putting out really interesting work of whatever form or whatever aren't doing it. They're you know they're not they're not doing. No, it. I agree. It, it's not that someone's, you know, there's all these like, you know, creative people that are going to like, are, are, are going to expand the uh, four corners of what Asian American, you know, creativity can be, but they're getting boxed out by gatekeepers, which is, let's face it, what we've been, how we've been framing this for a long time, right? And the gatekeeping is there, Sure. But on the other hand, I don't think that there is a large group of, or even even a small group, honestly, 
of Asian American creatives who are being boxed out, uh, but otherwise would be creating great stuff. They just don't exist. And and part of our original plan was to say, well, we're going to try and put our money where our mouth is, and we're going to write our stuff, and we're going to pay you to write your stuff. And as we wrote our stuff, we got we found a few people who were going to write their stuff, but honestly, it was really it was like pulling teeth. Well, well see and, the problem. Well, see, the problem with that is the money, even if we pay market rate, is is essentially like what do they call it? Like like a like an honorarium, you know, kind of thing. It's really not actually worth the your full effort, right? Um, no, mean, that's bullshit to to all the people out there who who think that the problem is that no one's paying you to be creative because. Honestly, I think the type of thing that I want to see people they would write it anyway. Like even if like even if the the chances of this of getting paid for it, of getting it, you know, published or made into a movie or whatever were effectively zero, you would still do it. I want to see that level of creativity. Uh and I think like a true writer would still do it that way. I I just don't believe that the problem is that we don't have enough money or enough prestige to in, to incentivize this writing because i think the whole problem with writing or the the shitty stuff that we're seeing um i'm not saying plan a stuff but i'm saying like asian american stuff is that it is all contingent on people trying to make a, a name for themselves and a, make a career out of it and incentive driven writing is inherently boring you know no no I, I agree with that i, I think yeah. the problem with i mean i think this is a general problem let's just focus on asian american i think yeah. in order to have that mindset which uh is i'm gonna do this thing that's very difficult prospects rewards very dim and even the rewards if i do get them not that great i mean the, I, I guess I'll, in my little circle i'll be revered but the you know outside of that i, I might as well just be nobody anyway and i'm not gonna have even have money to show for it that needs to get activated. And the people who get activated do it for the wrong reasons. And the people who could actually contribute something uh, meaningful, I think that part of their way of thinking gets, it, it atrophies because nobody actually tells them, hey, you're part of a, a certain group of Asian Americans that, or, or part of Americans, period, that actually should be collecting these thoughts, organizing them and finding a way to express them. So they go on with their lives and they may have like the craziest stories to tell the most vivid imagination but it actually never even occurs to them to exercise that muscle and it is difficult probably to uh build that it's like a neural network you got to build in order to think of narratives or essays and and sit down and do it and the thing i brought up about the money was i think there's some people a small minority people like us who do do it because we just want to and it doesn't even matter if it doesn't bring us any fame or fortune but for all the other people who may need a little bit more push it's like they either need money or they need the uh, the prestige and, and the problem with our thing was the money we offered wasn't high enough it was merely market rate which is no it's I, I, I still don't agree man I, even if we put out a thousand dollars i don't think that would improve the situation for us 